Well, Luke chapter number two is going to be our text today, and we are going to be reading this very familiar passage, this nativity passage, this Christmas story uh, in the gospel of Luke chapter two. Just before we get into that, though, let me remind you that over the last few weeks, we've been considering these voices of Christmas. This is week number four. Next week, we'll uh, finish up with week number five of the voices of Christmas, where we have been listening to some voices. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I think we didn't do it last week. Last week, the voice of Christmas was Christy Knuckles. Didn't she do a wonderful job uh, ministering to us last week? But previous to that, we had listened to some very, very famous Christmas voices, these classic Christmas voices that sing some of the classic Christmas songs. And we've had some fun with that. So I thought we'd do it uh, again today. And we'll probably do it again next Sunday. By the way, let me give you a hint about one of the classic voices we'll listen to next Sunday and uh, give you a hint about who it is. I'm not going to tell you the name, but um, he is from Memphis, Tennessee. All right. But you'll hear that (laughs) next week, not this week. This week, uh, we're going to hear a a few more old-time Christmas classics. Listen to this first one. See if you recognize this. Just hear those sleigh bells jingling, ring, Now, that's classic, right? Come on, it's lovely weather. I see you tapping your feet. Anybody know who that is? Who's singing that? Nobody knows. Yeah, that goes way, way back. That is the uh, Andrew sisters, all the way back to the... I think that's late 40s, maybe, early 50s, something like that. Some of you would have to tell me I wouldn't know. But here's the next one. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Always reminds me of the movie Home Alone. Did you see that? Anybody know who's singing that? Brenda Lee. There you go. One more. Here we go. Listen to this one. Set the night wind to the little land. Do you see what I see? That's pretty good, right? All right, shout it out. What's his name? Who sang that? Bing Crosby. You got it. That's right. Bing Crosby. Somebody yelled Bing Crosby uh, last a couple of weeks ago for another one, and uh, but Bing showed up today. So that's fun. Now, we'll do that one more week, and I've enjoyed uh, hearing those Christmas songs, and, uh, and I know that many of you have as well. But th- we're having some fun with the Christmas songs, but there are some much more important voices that we need to hear, and these are the voices that we're speaking into the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Over the last few weeks, we have heard the voice of preparation. Do you remember that? Week number one, the voice of preparation. This was the voice of Zacharias and his son, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one that came prior to Jesus, six months before Jesus, he was born. And he was the forerunner, the one who said of himself, I am the voice, quoting Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We heard his voice, the voice of preparation. Then we heard the voice of promise. This was the voice of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel speaking uh, to Mary uh, when he uh, gave what we call the Annunciation and explained to her that she would deliver the Christ child. Uh, and then we heard the voice of surrender. This was last Sunday's message. The voice of surrender. This was Mary's voice. As Mary said, be it unto me according to thy word, or so be it unto me, we learned 
that Mary gave her amen to the plan of God. Voice of preparation, promise, and the voice of surrender. Today, we're going to consider the fourth voice. Jot this down somewhere. It is the voice of peace. It is the voice of peace. And it will be the voice of an angelic choir. Peace. There's something about that word, isn't there? When, when you just think about or say the word or speak the word, peace. It, it almost has this quality where it just it brings what it says. It settles our soul a little bit when we think about enjoying peace. Peace is a word that is found in the Bible, interestingly, um, over 400 times. It is arguably one of the most prominent Bible uh, words in the entirety of Scripture. I mean, other than words like God and, and Lord and Amen, which are there eight, nine uh, hundred times, even a thousand or more times, uh, the word peace is one of the most prominent words in the Bible. It's there more than the word love. The word peace is in the Bible more than the word grace or more than the word mercy or joy over 400 times. In fact, every author in the New Testament writes about peace. Every author in the New Testament prays that their readers will have peace Every author in the New Testament talks to their readers about how they can experience peace. Every author in the New Testament uh, invites their readers to have the peace of God. Every book in the New Testament and most in the Old Testament deal with this topic of peace. And the word that's used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the word that is used for peace or translated peace is the word that many of you know. It's the word shalom. Shalom. In fact, if you've ever um, maybe interacted much with anybody in the Jewish community, certainly if you've ever been to the Holy Land, uh, you will hear this word often. Shalom. In fact, why don't we say that? You want to speak some Hebrew this morning? Would you just say it out loud with me? Just say shalom. Shalom. Uh, the word means peace. Now, when you visit the Holy Land, when you are in the urban areas like uh, Tel Aviv, uh, the largest city uh, in Israel, or Jerusalem, actually, I think Jerusalem's larger now, but anyway, these large uh, cities in Jerusalem, uh, you will hear them use the word shalom. Now, if you're in the, in the outlying areas, the more rural areas in Israel, in what we would call the country of Israel, uh, they pronounce it a little bit differently. They add a, a word to it. And they say shalom y'all in the country, out <laughs> in Israel. You know that's not true, right? I just made that up. Shalom y'all. That's the way we would say it here in Buncombe County or Madison County, right? Or, or certainly in, well, I don't want to say anything about Yangtze County or anything. Maybe if you look further north, maybe shalom y'all for sure. But the word shalom is a word which means to, to have tranquility. It means to be at rest. Uh, it's the idea of being uh, whole and there being an absence of conflict. So it can be an inner peace where I'm at rest in my soul. It can be a relational shalom where there's an absence of conflict in relationship, or it can be a cultural shalom, where in a culture or a community, there is a sense of peace and the absence of conflict, or it can be a spiritual shalom, where I am at peace and no longer 
in conflict with God. But in, in whatever sense we're talking about it, it is a word which just causes our soul to settle a bit. One of the last things that Jesus said before his crucifixion, in fact, on the night before Jesus went to the cross, early the following morning, he offered his disciples, and by extension us, he offered them peace. Listen to this passage in John 14 and verse 27. These are the words of Jesus. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, if you know that passage, you know that Jesus spoke these words in a moment when his disciples were trembling with fear and doubt and confusion because he had just said to them, I'm going away. You can't go where I'm going. I'm leaving you. This thing that you've known with me, this journey that you've been walking on with me for the last three years is about to end and it's going to end tonight. And I'm going to be taken away from you and I'm going to go away to my father's house and you will see me no more. And they are dumbfounded by that news. They're, they're, the bottom falls out of their lives. They're literally, they're just rocked to their core by that. And in the midst of that fear and that confusion, Jesus says, I'm going to give you my peace. And I would just suggest to you that this is something that's necessary in our day. Agreed? This is something in our worlds of confusion and fear and doubt and struggles. That we need to hear Jesus say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, said that peace is a defining characteristic of the life of a person who is living in the kingdom of God, who's walking in the spirit of God, that that person will experience peace. Listen to what he says in Romans 14 and verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Let me explain it. What he means is the kingdom of God or being a part of the kingdom of God is not about being a rule keeper, making sure you eat the right foods or drink the right drinks or making sure that you uh, go the right places or do the right things. No, he says it's, it's not about being a rule keeper but being in the kingdom of God is about experiencing the righteousness of God and the peace of God. And then Galatians 5, 22, same author, Paul wrote these words, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And the third thing he mentioned is peace. Jesus promised us peace. Paul told us that when we're walking in the kingdom of God, we can experience peace and that the that the way that we have that peace is not by self-manufacturing it, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit giving it to us. And so may I recommend to you, may I offer to you this morning, the peace of Almighty God, the offering of God for you is his peace. Well, let's read about it. Luke chapter number two uh, will begin in verse number one. Luke two verse one. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was uh, first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, 
He went there to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. By the way, ladies, this is a journey of about 70 miles up through the Judean hills, up through the mountains uh, to the high city of Bethlehem in the mountains just near Jerusalem. Imagine Mary making that journey on donkey, in all likelihood, being a full 40 weeks pregnant. Well, the Bible says that uh, he went there to be taxed with Mary, his spouse's wife being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, the King James translation says. They were, the words mega, they were super afraid, as you and I would have been as well. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and good will toward men. Now, next Sunday, if you're uh, here, and I hope you'll be able to be back next Sunday on Christmas Sunday, December the 20th, we'll actually read this exact same passage, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, and we will focus in on uh, the entire passage and pay particular attention to the events of the birth and particular attention to the response of the shepherds. And so next week, we'll talk about the voice of proclamation and the voice of the shepherds sharing this good news. But today, I want us to focus on the voice of peace or the voice of the angels. And so specifically, we're going to be hanging out in verses number 13 and 14. But let me kind of walk through the passage with you to uh, sort of make sure we arrive in verses 13 and 14 together. As you work through this passage, one of the things that you'll notice, and I hope you'll jot this down somewhere, one of the things that you'll see is that in this passage, the gospel is declared very, very plainly, in fact, with, with uh, no ambiguity at all, there is a declaration of the gospel that happens here. The Bible says in verse number 9 that the angel of the Lord, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon these shepherds. Now, the angel of the Lord is not named, but we believe, I'm confident, that the angel of the Lord here in this passage is once again Gabriel. We've been seeing Gabriel all around town in these Christmas passages that we've been reading. Gabriel showed up in Jerusalem in the temple Uh, where he announced to Zacharias that Elizabeth would give birth to John the Baptist. And then it was uh, Gabriel six months later who came to Nazareth where Mary was there, perhaps at the well drawing water where Gabriel came to her and said, you're going to conceive and bear a son. And then it was Gabriel who then went to Joseph because Joseph 
didn't believe Mary's story at first, that her pregnancy was a divine and an immaculate and a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. He was going to call the wedding off. So it was Gabriel that went to Joseph to say, no, no, she's telling you the truth. Mary, uh, take Mary to be your wife. So it's, it's, it's reasonable to assume that, again, it's Gabriel that shows up in Bethlehem or just outside of Bethlehem to announce the birth of Jesus to these shepherds. And when he shows up, he preaches the gospel to them. Look at verse number 10, and, and you'll hear him preach the gospel. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. We learned this word a couple of weeks ago, this word for good news. The Greek word is uh, euangelizo. Euangelizo. It's, it's this word which means to proclaim the good news or to preach the good news or to evangelize. Behold, I bring you good news. Gabriel is evangelizing the shepherds. In fact, I think that makes Gabriel the first evangelist following the birth of Jesus. Now, some have said, well, the shepherds would be the first evangelist. That would be true. But it was Gabriel that came to them and evangelized them, telling them the good news. And I love this about God. I love the fact that at the very first public announcement from heaven in 400 years, and by the way, you realize this, right? That there was a 400-year span of time, a gap, between the closing of the Old Testament prophet Malachi, where the Old Testament closed and heaven went silent. For 400 years, no prophet, no angel speaking from heaven, no public word from God for 400 years. Until you come to the recording of the Gospels, and Gabriel speaks privately to Zacharias. He speaks privately to Mary. He speaks privately to Joseph. But now in this passage, for the first time, the heavens open, the angel steps forth, people are listening, and he speaks publicly. And the very first public word from heaven in 400 years is, I have good news. Don't you love that about God? He brings the good news. Can I tell you something? The gospel is good news. Amen. You know, we're so fixated on the bad news in our culture. We're, we're, we're so fixated on the, on the bad things that are happening. In the, in the world of journalism, in the world of the news media, the saying is, if it bleeds, it leads. Good news doesn't sell advertising. Only bad news will sell advertising. Tracy and I were in the kitchen making dinner a few nights ago and we had the TV on and we weren't really watching it but we were listening to it and it was 6.30 and ABC World News came on and, and uh, the, the anchor said, as we come on the air tonight, and I just interrupted and said, I can tell you what he's going to say. As we come on the air tonight, everything is terrible. And for about 10 minutes, that's what he said. I don't minimize that there's a lot of bad news in the world, but here's the good news, that in the midst of all the bad, God has invaded our world with good news. And we ought to share it, shouldn't we? We, we ought to talk about it. We ought, to, we ought to say it. When we train people in evangelism here at Brookstone, many hundreds of you have been through our evangelism training, and, and when we train you how to share the gospel, we always teach you to begin with your thumb up. That's the first thing you learn. We start with the good news. By the way, if you're ever going to tell anybody about Jesus, don't start with the bad news. I mean, they are a sinner, just like you and I are sinners, and they need to know the truth about sin. But if you start your evangelistic conversation by saying, you're such a sinner, it's probably not going to go well. 
Maybe you should begin by saying heaven is a free gift and God wants you to come there. Now, there is a problem of sin and we need to know how God solved the problem, but let's tell the good news. Well, Gabriel brings the gospel. He brings the good news and we ought to tell it. So in this passage, the gospel is declared. The second thing that I notice about this passage, though, is this, this um, evidence that is given, this evidence that's provided uh, about this baby that's been born. Now, let me, before I get into the evidence of Luke chapter 2, let me tell you something that maybe you already know, maybe many of you don't know this, but um, it's an interesting fact, that by all accounts, Jesus in his lifetime, fulfilled um, at least 300 Old Testament prophecies related to the Messiah. By his birth and throughout his life, he fulfilled hundreds, most people say certainly more than 300 prophecies. And the fulfillment of these prophecies in the life of this one man is great evidence of his identity. In fact, um, maybe you'll make a mental note because I'd love for you to go read some of his material. Uh, there uh, was a, a gentleman, he's of course in heaven now, uh, he was a 19th century Messianic Jew by the name of Alfred Indersheim. Alfred Indersheim. I would highly recommend his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's wonderful, wonderful uh, and instructive book. But at any rate, Alfred Indersheim, lived in the 1800s, was born a Jewish man in an Orthodox Jewish family. He studied the Torah, studied the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, he found by his own count 456 direct prophecies of the Messiah that was to come. 456 direct prophecies. And as Indersheim then considered the life of Jesus, he determined that this one man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled all 456 of those Old Testament prophecies. And Indersheim said, if all of those prophecies of the Messiah are fulfilled in this one man, he must be the Messiah. And he became a believer in Jesus Christ, a Messianic Jew. Imagine 456 prophecies written hundreds of years and in some cases a couple of thousand years before a person's birth with great specificity and detail regarding things like his family, his birth, the location of his birth, the circumstances surrounding his birth. What his life would be like, what would happen to him in his life, how he would be killed Imagine all of those 456 predictions, prophecies, written hundreds of years before a person is born, and then all of them being fulfilled in one person. The mathematical probabilities of that happening are astronomically in small. <laughs> They're tiny, infinitesimal. That's not the right word. I was trying to think of the word. It couldn't happen. Absent the miracle and the divine placement of God in this world by his son. Well, this is a bit of what the angels does. Look at what the Bible says in verses 11 and 12. He, he gives a bit of prophecy, or at least direction, to these disciples. 
or these shepherds rather. Verse 11, for unto you was born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He says, uh, a, a baby has been born. Uh, he has been born today. He has been born in Bethlehem. He has been born in a stable because he's been laid in a manger and he is wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, even just, what, what is that? That's, that's uh, today is the day in the place of Bethlehem, in a stable, wrapped in rags, lying in a manger. Five prophecies, if you will, five statements about this child that if they just found the child that fulfilled all five of those, they would know this is the right child. But what if they found a child that was born today in Bethlehem, but it was in a house and he was lying on a bed? Well, that wouldn't work, right? That wouldn't match. That, that's, not, that's not what they said would be the case. And so they go to Bethlehem and they find a child born on that day. And they look in a, cable, a stable cave and they find a child wrapped in swaddling clothes and that child is lying in a manger, which by the way is a feeding trough for cattle. It's not where you lay a baby normally. And all five of those things were the evidence of who he was. It would be like us saying, a child was born today. Here's how you'll know him. He was born over in Weaverville. Um, he was born in a house on um, a back road. Um, the house where he was born has, I don't know, a gazebo. And if you go into the house on the back road in Weaverville with a gazebo, you'll find him wrapped in a blue blanket lying in an orange crib. <laughs> Clemson fans to where he was born. You say, Pastor, who would lay their baby in an orange crib? Well, who would lay their baby in a manger, a feeding trough? And yet if you found that orange crib and that baby in a blue blanket on that, in that house on Broad Street with a gazebo in the yard and that baby was born today, you would say, surely this is the one that they've told me about. It's the evidence that's provided. And I would suggest to you that Jesus is the Messiah and the evidence is clear. God has given us the evidence of his identity. Well, the passage tells us about the gospel that was declared and the evidence that was given. The third thing, and really this is where I want us to land and, and wrap up today, is that in this passage you have this, this heavenly praise and promise. There's, there's heavenly praise, but then there's a promise in this passage as well. It's almost as if on cue, you know, the angel Gabriel shows up, he's making the declaration about the birth of Jesus, only one angel only Gabriel, we believe, he's making the, the, uh, the announcement to the shepherds. And then it's almost as if on, on cue, at the right moment, suddenly the, the sky is filled. It explodes and is filled with this heavenly praise. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly Host, a multitude of the heavenly hosts. Well, how many is that? How many angels showed up that night? Well, when you consider the heavenly host, it's a lot of angels, right? So the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 and 22 that the number of angels is in fact innumerable. Hebrews 12, 22 says, we who have come to Christ have come to an innumerable number of angels. It's an infinite number. 
The Bible says in Revelation chapter 5, you get this glimpse into heaven and you see the angels in heaven and it says there are their, their number is 10,000 times 10,000, which by my math is 100 million. And then on top of that 100 million, there are thousands and thousands of thousands. It's an innumerable number. And the Bible says in Luke chapter number 2 that this heavenly host is represented by a multitude of them. Now, I don't believe all of the angels came into the sky that night, but a lot of them did. A multitude of them did. And they said, or sang, I don't know if they sang. It says that they said, but they could have sang this chorus of praise to God. Look at it, verse number 14. They said, or sang, glory to God in the highest. There was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and, and saying glory to God in the highest. There's a bit of dispute, by the way, about what's in view here. Um, does the passage mean in verse 14 when it says glory to God in the highest, are they saying, are they speaking about how God is to be praised? Let us give glory to God in the highest or to the highest degree. It's really an important point for us to consider because it would cause us to ask, how is it that we give glory to God? When we assemble like the angels did, celebrating the life that they were celebrating, the life of Jesus, when we gather as a church and we sing praises to God, how do we do it? Do we do it in the highest? Or do we do it mediocre? Or do we do it hands in pockets, shuffling and singing like this? No, when you realize the gospel and the good news and the, and the power of who Jesus is, we ought to give him glory in the highest. Amen? It might be talking about that. Certainly that would be correct. It might be talking about where God was being praised. As a result of this birth, he was being praised in the highest heavens. What the shepherds were seeing was just one glimpse of some of the angels, but beyond what they could see in the highest heavens where they could not see there was glory being given, praise being given to God. That could be what is in view here, and it would be correct as well. It could be emphasizing why they were praising God. They were giving him this great praise because heaven and earth are met in the Christmas story, in the reality of the birth of Christ, that there's worship in heaven and there's peace on the earth. Well, they sing glory to God in the highest. And then they say in verse number 14, peace and on earth, peace and goodwill toward man. Peace on earth. According to this Christmas story, according to this birth narrative, the angels declared this one thing. It is that the promise of Christmas is peace. I want you to hear this pastor this morning very, very clearly. I want all of you to listen to me. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know if your soul is troubled like a pot of boiling water. Just there's a tempest in your life. And I don't know if when you think about God and eternity and when you consider death and where you will go, if, if you are filled with fear and trembling and trepidation and uncertainty... Or if there's peace. But here's what I want you to know. That the promise of Christmas is peace. 
Glory to God in the highest, and among men on the earth, let there be peace. Now remember the definition of peace. It means to be at rest. It means to experience tranquility or to live with harmony. And these things are sorely lacking in our world and in many of our lives. And so Jesus offers it by his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. Let me just give you a couple of things quickly. Jesus offers us peace in our hearts. He does. Can I share with you Romans 5 and verse number 1? Which says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is the promise of Christmas that, that I don't have to remain at odds with God. So many people believe, you know, if you say, well, how does God feel about you? They would say, well, I know the Bible says God is love, but I get the feeling he's just kind of mad at me. I get the feeling that God and I are just apart. In fact, the Bible says before we come to faith in Christ, we are God's enemy. But the promise of Christmas is that you don't have to be God's enemy. That you can be justified by faith in Christ and you can be at peace with God. The hostility gone so that you can lay your head on your pillow at night and know that the God who made you and the God to whom you are accountable is a God with whom you can have perfect tranquility and perfect peace. He offers us peace in our hearts. Number two, he offers us peace in our hurts. Peace in our hurts. Now the truth is, life hurts. And I mentioned earlier that we are, we are living in a world that's filled with pain and brokenness and disappointment and loss and grief and sickness and sin and all these things. And because of that, life is filled with pain and life hurts. But the Bible says that God offers to hurting people his peace. In fact, the scriptures say in Philippians 4 and verse number 7 that the peace that he gives us is a peace beyond our comprehension. The King James says it passes all understanding. How can you walk through such hardship? How can you hurt so deeply? How can you be so grieved and yet have peace? It is because of Christmas and Christ and his birth and life and death and resurrection. He offers us peace in our heart with God, peace in our hurts when life is broken. He offers us peace in our homes so that in our relationships and our families and our marriages, we don't have to live with constant conflict. We don't have to be at odds all the time. We don't have to always be in a fight. Why? Not because we're magnanimous people and great reconcilers. No, because Christ has come and Christ has redeemed us by his death and his resurrection. And, and when you're redeemed and I'm redeemed, when, when my spouse is redeemed and I'm redeemed, then though we're broken, though we have disagreements, though we have conflict, we're able to come together because Christ has redeemed us to himself. And so he offers to give us peace in our homes. Ephesians 4 and verse 3 says that we ought to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that it's the Spirit of God that produces our peace, and we then work hard to maintain that peace. Peace in our hearts, our hurts, and our homes. And then lastly, he offers us peace as our hope. Peace as our hope. Have you gotten any Christmas cards this year? Probably. You gotten one or two already? 
And I would be willing to bet that if you've gotten more than a handful, at least one of those cards has said on the front of it or somewhere on the inside, peace on earth. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the promise of Christmas, that there will be peace on the earth. There's not peace on the earth today. There's not. There's conflict. There's saber rattling. There's the potential of, of, uh, of clashes among cultures and among countries. And yet the promise of Christmas is that there will one day be peace on the earth, peace throughout the world. And when will that happen? It will happen when the Prince of Peace comes. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says that the Messiah, Jesus, is the Prince of Peace. For his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the, say it out loud with me, the Prince of Peace. So when Jesus comes to the earth and he's coming again, he will bring peace and he will rule and reign. But you see, he's in my heart today. He reigns in my heart, so there's peace in my heart. And if he can reign and be Lord in my hurts, there will be peace in my hurts. And if he can reign in my home, there will be peace in my home. And one day when he comes to reign over all the earth, then he will bring peace to the earth. The point is where Jesus rules, he brings peace. And so this is why. When a bunch of shepherds were gathered out on the hillside doing what they do, keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord came upon them, and he told them about this baby born up in Bethlehem in a stable, wrapped in cloths, laid in a manger, he said, this child has come to be your Savior. And on that cue, the angel said, so let there be praise in the highest, glory in the highest, and peace on the earth. If you walk away from the peace of God offered you today, it's like walking up to God's Christmas tree and having a beautifully wrapped package filled with peace and saying, just save that till next year. I think I'll not open that gift. Let me offer you the gift of God's peace.